we fought over you as to who's going to introduce you. And I still think I'm, I'm the, never mind. Let it not be said that things don't happen at Northridge. Uh, I just learned this morning that we had some activity in the uh, parking lot last night. Ours. Yeah. Now, I'm going to let you know something. God is still in control. He's, he's got his hand on his work. He has his hand on his people. Nobody was hurt, apparently. Damage has been done, but that's can be taken care of. But it's extremely, we need to realize that what do we expect from an unconverted world but chaos and havoc. We need to pray for our neighbors, pray for our neighborhood, and reach out. Because I'm going to assure it just has been prayed already. People are afraid. They are afraid. And we need to show the peace that passes all understanding that's keeping our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. But you have to experience that peace yourself. That's what it's about. We can say have peace and be at war in ourselves. And that's not going to convince them that we have a God who cares for them and loves them. That's what the message is for our world today is we have answers to their problems of chaos and havoc. It's been, it's my responsibility to introduce a dear brother. Matter of fact, there are two dear brothers here. When the National Convention was here, uh, way back when, 100 years ago, Scott, wasn't it? I uh, bent Scott Owen's ear and told him my concerns and my burden for for Northridge. And little did I know that God was going to take the next step and move us towards meeting up with Baptist church planners bringing to us, of course, Marty and his family and Scott and his family and other pastors from Altoon and what have you. But now he's introduced us to Pastor Strobe. He's going to introduce us to, to, to Gabriel, even though Gabriel's been here for a couple of Sundays. God's leading us. And there, there's no doubt about it, that, that God has work, wants to work here, and we've got the message. But he sent us today, and we, we've been preparing for this for some time, he sent us today, John Jenks. I'm going to let him tell you what he does. No, I, he didn't want to tell us what he does. No, he does it well. Uh, but he can share a little bit. But he's never been, he's been here, but he hasn't been here to preach, I don't think. Is that right? You've never been here. And he's, so now he's going to feed us. 
And whatever he gives us, it's from the Lord, and I know God will bless him. John, come on up and share with us what God has laid on your heart. It's a privilege to introduce you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate, Pastor Jim, your words and encouragement to us as part of a community here. And uh, I stopped not far from here for a cup of coffee on my way to church early this morning and got to talk about God with a gentleman who had no intention to go to church this morning. Um, I don't think that's ever a part of his life, older guy. And uh, we talked for a bit by the gas pump about creation, about who God is, and uh, he said, what are you doing? Because I have, I have my dog is in the back of my truck because I'm headed off to a hunting trip for discipleship. And he's looking at my truck and looking at how I'm dressed. And he's like, I didn't look like I fit. And uh, he was ready to go hiking. And he looked at me and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to preach this morning. And he was like, oh. And so that started our conversation about the Lord. And, uh, and it was good to just speak a piece of the gospel to him this morning. And I pray that he'll think about that. And, and so let's, let's pray for the community, even as Pastor Jim has kind of pointed us. Lord, we thank you that uh, Northridge is here. And I know there are many people praying for us this morning. I thank you for Ankeny Baptist Church and many of the people there who are praying for this body this morning, and have desire, even as I prayed with some of them this morning, desire for this community and see a need for this church to be here and be a lighthouse and to reach. And Lord, it's possible neighbors are scared or shaken up from yesterday. And so if you would give personal connect, maybe even in the parking lot this morning after church, to speak to a neighbor, to pray with them and to encourage them, just give wisdom to this church body, family by family, how to love the people that are right next to them here. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you're running my slides for me this morning. If you could just pull up the first slide, which has my family on it. Um, I hope the next time, if, if you let me come back someday, but I'd love to be here with my wife. She's the much, much more the better part of me, but Jennifer and I uh, enjoy having three kids, and uh, we have some exciting news. Our, our oldest is married, and our granddaughter turned two today. And uh, that's, that's just kind of fun. So I get to see her for a moment tonight, right before she goes to bed. I'm excited about that. But we just found out from them that we have twins on the way. And our family has never experienced such a thing, so I have no idea what any of that means. And uh, our, our next son, just he works for the Air Force as a civilian. His name is Joshua. He's in Ohio. And I so appreciate a text I had from him this week. He said, it was so cool to see God help me at work. I was in a situation where... It, it, I might have to, well, my morals could be questioned, or like, am I going to make a godly decision or not? And he felt like he was in one of those Daniel corners at work, where he's going to have to stand, and what's going to happen, and God gave him a way to stand in the truth, and it worked out okay, and he was just rejoicing at God's help. And uh, we pray that for all of us, as old and young alike in this room. We have to make those decisions craftily as we walk in the world. And then our daughter, Abigail, if you think of one thing to pray for her, she is going to be student teaching in, uh, starting in January in Kenya, Africa. And uh, her mother is, uh, you know, thinking about that already, if you can well imagine. So she's going to be doing her final part of her senior year in Kenya. So you could pray for Abigail. That just gives you an idea of what we're like. We're real people who get concerned about things like Kenya and, and think about things uh, regarding our children and pray for them just like you. 
The next slide just talks about our mission. Why is BCP involved with Northridge? Well, it's not because we're in charge. Okay, God's church is God's plan for how things happen. So we're here just to stir up help and, uh, and to have another church like Ankeny involved. Ankeny can't tell you what to do because you're your own church. They're their own church. And my counsel says maybe I shouldn't say it this way, but I think BCP is just the grease and the gears. Okay, we're the one. They keep it from getting hot, help it all work together. And it, it stirs up what I think is in the book of Acts where one church helps another church and together then God makes greater impact. And uh, especially at different times and in different ways. The next, well, let me, just at the bottom of this slide, sometimes we can say all that and it sounds nice and big, but how does it happen? It's actually quite simple. It starts with discipleship, and today's message will be about that. It starts with you, I don't care your age, thinking about how can I be discipled and how might God have me disciple someone else. Because out of that, multiplication happens. In other words, more people come to Jesus, and then your church, an Ankeny, the church I go to in Ohio, that we can send extra people out to plant a church or to help a church that's struggling. In the weeks to come, it's possible some of the Ankeny families might be here um, as your church leadership sees fit for how they could be helpful. Uh, Gabriel being here is kind of like that. Okay, And so it's churches working together, and so there's an excess so they can send even if it's only five, six miles away. And then out of that, churches could be revitalized. That's your aim. We want to be full of life, revived by God, as it says. Um, not asleep at the wheel, as it says in Ephesians, right? Not asleep, but coming awake. Not acting like we're dead, because we're actually alive in Christ. And uh, the size of a church has nothing to do with revisal, revitalization. Um, I've been in churches of 300 that needed revitalizing. Okay, so size isn't about it. It's about being alive in Jesus Christ and demonstrating that. And Sean, you did a great job this morning speaking the truth of our confidence in Christ and showing that aliveness to us this morning by what you said. You know, the next slide just talks about in a kind of a personal way, how does a church do that? And how does God call this out? So I came from Calvary Baptist Church, pastor there for 22 years, and they're my sending church. So I report to them because again, the church is in charge, not me. And out of Calvary, as I was sent to be with BCP, first as a vice president and now as president, our energy as a mission through local churches is to help local churches do these things of disciple, sending, planting, revitalizing. And I actually listed on the screen here different churches, and you see Ankeny. So years ago, before I was even with BCP, uh, my church helped Ankeny with discipleship. And now, six years later, they have excess people and energy so their pastor and others can come and help you. The one thing on this slide I want to point out is the arrow that comes down, okay? Um, and my grandfather talks about this arrow. He's in heaven now, but he would, he would have said this. He'd say, you know, John, you came into Northridge today, and you get the benefit of being at Northridge. And somebody else did all the work. Okay, and some of you might have been here at the beginning, I don't know, but you are here doing the work of a church, and my, my grandfather said, you know, many of us, most of us in the room probably inherited Northridge. We came in after it was already going, and as we come in after it's already going, we have to say, okay, if God put this here, and he's put me here, what am I going to do with that? My grandfather said, if you inherit something, you need to do something better with it than the way you got it. And I listened to that from my grandfather. Okay, so if I'm inheriting Northridge today, it's very important that as I preach in just a moment, I don't mess it up. 
Okay? I need to add to what this church is, even if my part is only one day with your church. The next slide kind of shows you how this can multiply. So you have Calvary helping Ankeny. And Ankeny on this slide, you see they've helped Creston. They've helped Mason City. They've helped a few others. And now there's this orange arrow of revitalization down to a church called Northridge. And you say, well, what about the churches around Northridge? You got question marks. That's right. Because if you think for a minute, I believe Ankeny's going to help you and then you're just going to be a happy little church in this neighborhood. No. God intends... And you might not see it today, but this is God's normal plan. He intends for you to help other churches. I fully believe that. And you may look, you know, we look at ourselves at certain points, but I was a pastor for a long time. Counseled lots of couples that were ready for going into a divorce, all kinds of struggle. And I would tell them, wait a minute, if you follow God, he can build something here. Matter of fact, he could build something such that you would then actually help other couples in their marriage. And they go, you got to be kidding me. There is no way. And I say, don't say that. Because I'm going to laugh at you later when God does this. And you know, there are people today that are trained counselors who almost went through divorce that I counseled who now help many more people than I've helped. Uh, because that's God's plan. And so I actually did something new with this slide. I have an Ankeny arrow coming down and a Northridge arrow coming. And there's a church with a question mark there. Because I also believe you're going to know some Ankeny people. And they're going to know you. And you will have worked together for a while. So don't you think it would make total sense for Ankeny and Northridge to partner together to help another church? I got one amen. That's good. You can say it a little longer, a little louder. I might preach shorter. I doubt it. But, okay, that's what God does. And, and we just need to understand that's his normal plan. We just need to trust him and walk forward and do the obedient things that I'm about to teach. Matter of fact, I'm going to skip the rest of the slides. Take me all the way to the slide that says declare it. Can you do that in Titus 2? You guys are pretty sharp up there. It looks like it. You don't need to know how I'm paid and all those things. We'll, we'll skip all that. Let's get to the text. Go to Titus chapter 2. It's more important than my words. And as you, as you think about Titus 2... I want you to have something in your head as you think about it. I want you to think about who's in front of me and who's behind me. See, as I pastored the first few years at a church, and it was a little bit larger church when I inherited it, you know, walked in, and I'm pastoring. I had five young ladies, kind of between the ages of 22 and 25, who came to me and said, we want someone to disciple us, because I'd been preaching the need for discipleship. And I said, that's good, that's right. So I gathered up the five oldest, most godly women at the church that I knew. And I sat them down and sat with them and I said, would you be willing to disciple these five young ladies? Each of you take a lady. They really want to grow. This is an awesome opportunity. And you know what those five older women told me? No. Yeah, uh-oh, is right. I, and I'm not like a guy who cries too easily, especially when I was younger. And I went back to my office, and I was in tears. I'm like, God, how... Titus 2 clearly says that an older woman, we're going to get to it, an older woman is to disciple or help a younger woman. If these older women won't do this, what can I do? I'm not supposed to disciple a 22-year-old woman. How's this going to work? Thankfully, uh, one of those ladies, uh, her name is Mrs. Padel. She's in heaven now. She was a retired teacher. She's about 60 years old at the time. She had just retired. She'd been a widow for 15 years. Her husband had died young. So she'd known some trouble. And uh, she came back to me and she said, I don't know how to disciple, but I know it's in the Bible. If you help me, I'll do it. 
And I thought, thank God for people like Mrs. Padel. And Mrs. Padel's a godly woman. You have to know her. She's a no-nonsense lady. And it's important to describe her a little bit because I'm going to use her at the end of the message, her story. But, you know, she's a kind of a, a factual Wisconsin tough lady. I mean, she's the lady when I was a pastor there in charge of nurseries and all our education. I was an assistant pastor. I put my two-year-old for the first day of twos and threes class. I took him and I put him over that half door that's at horse stables and churches. Never quite figured that out. But I put this kid over the door and set him down. And the biggest three-year-old came over and shoved my little boy and put him right on his backside. And I'm supposed to be in charge of these rooms. And I thought, this is not good. What do I do? And my son got up and punched the kid right in the chest. And there was the dad side of me that was like a little proud. But then there was the pastor side of me that was like, that's probably not right. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do as a 25-year-old guy, a pastor. So Mrs. Pato was in charge of the room. And she said, Pastor, I'll take care of that. You run along. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I just <laughs> did what she said. You know, she was just one of these older ladies, like the passage is talking about, who understands how to lead and guide young men, young ladies, and, and to train them, as, is gonna, as we're going to say in this passage. Mrs. Padel took our family out on our anniversary week every year as long as I can remember. And she would ignore my wife and I for the most part. And she would talk to our three kids. And she never discipled our kids in some formal 13-week arrangement or something. She just, every year, she had taught them in Sunday school class along the way. And then every year, she would just kind of interview, see how they're doing, talk about Jesus while we ate pizza once a year. Remind me if I don't tell you at the end of the story what impact that kind of discipleship had on my 18-year-old son. You see, Mrs. Padel understood that discipleship has many different forms. She'd meet with a young lady in a regular way or do pizza with a family once a year. So when I talk today about who's in front of you and who's behind you, you need to think that this could happen in many different ways. Um, This is important to get all this in before I tell you what you're going to say when you're with people. But in this slide here is an example of it. You have my friend holding ducks over here, Ryan Zawicki. And uh, he came to our church, wanted to serve. And I said, well, will you teach... Uh, senior high Sunday school. He said yes, so we locked him in the room for like 10 years. You know, I mean, every year, every week he'd come and teach Sunday school to teenagers. He was great. And uh, one of the teenagers he taught was Zach, the guy in the middle of the picture. And he taught him year after year. And he, I remember times Ryan would come to me like, I don't think Zach's getting it. Like, I don't know if he's really listening or not. Well, along the way, Zach graduated and went to Bible college. And uh, almost got thrown out of Bible college. He made a blow dart gun and like shot fish out of the school pond, and which in Wisconsin we thought was normal, but apparently in Pennsylvania colleges this is not appropriate. And so like he barely made it through Bible college. But I'll never forget the Sunday that Ryan Zawicki got up and preached the installation service for Pastor Zach Torno, who came on staff at our church. Because year by year, men were discipling him and training him at a college, at home, in youth group. And then you have uh, Gabriel on the other end, Ryan's son, who Pastor Zach is discipled, has discipled. He just graduated. This picture's dated. Um, He just graduated uh, from high school, and Pastor Zach discipled him for four years. And you can see, again, I'm just trying to give you pictures of what this can look like. So let's go to the passage and let it tell us what we're supposed to do as we think about declaring it. Who's in front of me? Who's behind me? By the way, some of you have been thinking about this and you're like, who's in front of me? I'm so old. There's no one in front of me. 
Pastor Jim, <clears throat> we might be talking about that. No, that happens. But you know what that really means? Pastor Jim has the greatest opportunity because everyone's behind him and he can, he can guide them. It's not a disadvantage, but he just has to have a few other old people to hang out with, right, to keep encouraging them. And that's how God uses us. So wherever you are, who's in front of me? Who's behind me? The passage says it this way, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The word teach there is not the normal word for teach in the New Testament. It's a word that just kind of means tell or spit it out. And uh, the word doctrine at the end of the sentence is the normal word for teaching, actually. And you're going to see it show up in the rest of the passage. So I picked this passage because of my personality a little bit. I preach it the first time I go everywhere if I can, and because it fits my attitude. It says here, spit it out or teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 15, the end of this little section, starts out with the same word that was teach. Now it's declare, but it's the same word. So this little section is pretty obvious that it's a section made by God. We're supposed to spit it out, and verse 15, he gets all the way down, and Paul's talking to Titus, and he says, make sure you spit out or tell these things. And uh, you might say, where was Titus? Well, he was on the island of Crete. And it's probably worse than where we are, just so you know. Like if you sailed up to the dock at Crete, there would be a sign there that says, Island of Lazy Liars. I mean, that's what their own prophets called them. Uh, Can you imagine um, having to preach in a town that's known for being lazy and lying? That's a hard place to start a church. So if Paul gives that kind of instruction to Titus for Crete, I'm pretty sure we can do this passage by the power of God right where you are. All right? So declare these things. And verse 15 goes on as if spitting it out to you this morning wasn't enough. It says that I'm supposed to exhort you. Like Titus, exhort, which means I'm supposed to say you really need to do this passage. And if that wasn't enough, look at the next word. It says, and rebuke. So in other words, if you look at me and say, I can't do this, I'm supposed to say, you're wrong. Or if you go, I, 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 I don't, I'm supposed to say, no, you must. If you're not doing this, you're wrong. That's serious. And he says, don't just do that. You know, don't just rebuke. But he says, rebuke with all authority which is the word that takes us back to the most famous discipleship passage in Matthew 28, where it says all authority is in Christ and has been given to us so that as we go, we would make disciples. So, I mean, that just piles it up. Like, you're supposed to do this discipleship, and I'm looking at you with Christ's authority. It has been given to you. We have to do this passage. I mean, we can do a lot of other things at church, but this better happen or we're in trouble. And if that wasn't enough, look how that verse 15 sentence ends. It says, and let no one disregard you. So don't even try and argue with me today, okay, after the service, because I'm just going to keep telling you you're wrong. Um, And I do this. I've preached this sermon lots and lots of times. And I preached it at another Iowa church. I'm not telling you who. And I preached it there, and this little old lady came up to me after the service, and she goes, I can't do that. And I thought, didn't you listen to the introduction? Did you miss that? And I just looked at her, and they had a young pastor. He was like 30-something. And, and I see him over in the corner of the foyer like, oh, no. And I looked at the lady, and I said, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And she goes, but I just became a widow. And I said, ma'am, I am really sorry about that. I can't imagine. But that means you have more time to do the passage. And she's like, and she walked out of church. 
And I thought, oh man, I really kind of blew that. I was too harsh. I mean, I'm a visiting preacher. I need to be more careful. And the pastor comes up to me and goes, you know who that lady was? I'm like, no, I'm new here. She goes, that was the lady whose like, family gave the land for the church building to be built on. And I'm like, oh, great. Um, I only tell you the story because six months later, the pastor caught me at a conference. And he goes, you remember that lady you talked to? I'm like, yes, I'm sorry. He goes, don't be. She's doing the passage now. Because the passage isn't my words, right? And the Spirit of God was in that woman. She just needed some time to absorb it and go, okay, I, I must do this. Well, quickly, let's look at what we must do. Verse 1, it's really, as you read this passage, you're going to go, is he talking to Titus? Is he talking to an old man? Is he talking to me? And I think you probably need to go, yep. Okay, he's talking to all of us. And he says, teach or spit out, verse 1 again, what accords with sound doctrine. Now, kids, after the service, I don't know if we're allowed to go outside, but I do need to let my dog out for a minute before Sunday school, and, and you could meet my dog, Blitzkrieg, okay? He's a German short hair pointer, and as my friend says, all that running gear just to carry that nose. And, and a German short hair would be no good if it was all legs, no nose. And if it was all nose, no legs, that's no good, okay? What sound means is that everything needs to fit together. And he says, now, he says, spit out, teaching or doctrine, but it's got to be sound. It needs to fit. Your doctrine needs to be so complete that it handles a shooting or disturbance or hurts in a community. And that is the kind of doctrine we have here at this church. It's sound. We got to put it together so we know how to speak it to others. Teach what accords with sound doctrine, just like my Blitzkrieg is a sound example of a German short hair pointer. Verse 2, he looks now straight at older men. And I'm in that category, I think. And he says, older men, you're to be sober-minded. That means literally serious. In my church, I like to laugh, can you tell? I mean, I do. But at my church, I get accused on a regular basis, I mean regular basis, of being too serious. And what the people didn't know is I would go in my office and go, yes, because I knew that meant I was keeping this passage, okay? Like, I'm supposed to be serious. We're in a battle. This is not a flimsy thing we're doing called church. It's an, it, I mean, that's why some of you lead and spend a lot of energy on it. It's serious. Young, old men, we need to be serious. And we need to be dignified. That's not a word we use all the time. And the root of that word is the same word that's often translated godly. So dignified with the, the front end that's put on it, it means that you put people's attention on God. That's what the word means. Um, so you're not just living godly, you're actually directing their attention. So as old men, we should have young people or even older people walk away from us and go, man, every time I'm with Pastor Jim, he puts my mind on Jesus. That's what dignified is, okay? Dignified. And then he says we need to be self-controlled. Now that doesn't mean we can't be passionate, but it means that our passions must be brought within the range that fits with Jesus. Because Jesus was passionate about things, but we need to be passionate about the right things and controlled so that that's what happens. Old men, I think self-control is tough because we experience more and more life. I don't find self-control easier as I age. I find it takes even more battle to be there. I can be more out of shape in my mind and my words if I'm not careful as an older man. Be self-controlled. And then it says, be sound. That's that German short hair word. Okay? Sound in our faith, old men. Our faith needs to work in every circumstance, not just at church. It needs to work on the street. It needs to work at work, at home. It needs to be applied in all these places. Be sound in faith. 
I think um, as an older man, sometimes I can be sound in pattern. I've got good patterns in my life. The passage doesn't say be sound in pattern. It says be sound in faith. In other words, when people are with us, they should know that man lives his life based upon Jesus and confidence in Jesus, not based upon his disciplines. Now, disciplines are good, and God's going to want them in our life, but it needs to be dependent on Christ. When a young person sees us just very disciplined, they can look at us and go, I could never be that. But when they see that we depend on Christ, and that's what brings these things out in our life, that can make sense to them because they can believe that Christ can do the same things in them. Sound in our faith. Sound in our love. We need to be ready to love all kinds of people. Our church, where I pastored for a lot of years, we really started to reach people that had gone through drug and alcohol struggles and were in the midst of it. And we had all kinds of people come into church that didn't look like normal church people, whatever that is. And so sometimes people come in, you know, and, and cross-dress. And in our community, that was a little odd. And uh, definitely different in church. And I wondered the first time it happened... Because that's different than we are normally. Is my church going to be sound in love? Like, do we have love for all kinds of people that walk through our door? Because we need to. And we need to bring them Jesus Christ and let Christ then shape their lives. We need to be sound in love with the way we bring truth to them. We need to be sound, lastly, in steadfastness. Which means we need to be people that can, can hang tough when it's hard. And when I was studying this uh, several years ago, I was reading through Winston Churchill's history of World War II, uh, and it's like six volumes, and I love history. And so I was reading that, and I was right, it was just it had to been of the Lord, I was right in the spot where our president, FDR, met secretly in Newfoundland with Churchill, as before the U.S. was in the war, and they were planning how to handle things. And Winston Churchill sailed in on the Prince of Wales, a brand new battleship, the most premier ship of the day. And they met, and, and they met longer than they thought, and it went into Sunday. And so Churchill said, well, we should have a worship service. You can't even picture this happening today between our nations. But Churchill, who I don't believe was a believer, everything I've read, he picked out, oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, you know, that old hymn, and picked out scripture. And almost all the officers of both ships came to the bridge on the Prince of Wales and they worshiped God. And in the book, as it recounts this story, there's just one line, and it says, to think, half the men in this room were dead in six months because the Prince of Wales sank in Hong Kong, outside of Hong Kong, and almost every man was lost. And I thought, man, Winston Churchill was a guy who had steadfastness. And that bothered me because he doesn't know Jesus. He didn't know Jesus that I know of. How could a man have that much steadfastness who doesn't have Jesus? Compared to me, I can be kind of wimpy at times and not hang tough. And I have Jesus Christ. I have the Spirit of God in my life. I should have a steadfastness that's way past Winston Churchill. Wouldn't you agree as an older man with the Spirit of God? So, old men, are we clear on what we need to be? You might at this point go, boy, I don't know if I can be this. Don't worry, the gospel's talked about in a couple more verses. And it's going to show you how you absolutely can do this as an older man. Now, ladies, I hate to tell you this, and my wife says I'm not allowed to say old lady in church, but it's in the passage, okay? So older ladies, I'm coming to you. And the, the next verse says, in verse 3, it says, older women likewise. Now, what that means in the grammar is that everything I just said about the old men, the older women are supposed to do it as well. 
So let that sink in a minute. Older women, you know who you are. You're supposed to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness, dignified, self-controlled, all those things. And then he gives a longer list for women. And all the women say, we always have the longer list. At least I feel that way. I come home and I'm tired after working and my wife is like the Energizer Bunny. She just keeps going past me. And finally I'm like, Jen, will you please stop? Because I feel guilty because I can't keep up. And she must have a longer list because she is still going hard. I don't think it's that kind of list. I think the reason the ladies have additional instruction here, and you'll have to test this. I might be wrong, but it doesn't say why. But I think the reason it's why is because one of the things they're going to teach is that younger women are to be submissive. And being submissive, and, and, and that's God's plan for ladies, to submit at church, to submit in the home. That is a wonderful freeing thing when the men live holy. But when men do poorly at church or at home, it gets really hard for the ladies. Because what do I do? And the older ladies in church go, yeah, I know what you're saying. I've been there. I mean, you're going to be there. And men, we experience this at work sometimes. We have a boss that's evil, right? We understand a little bit of this. But for the ladies, this is a heavier burden when we as men don't do well. And so you look at the instruction, it kind of fits. He says, they're to be reverent in behavior. Because when the men aren't doing well, it's really easy to go, those men are dinglings, you know, or say something. And that's not reverent in behavior. Now, the men may not be doing well, but the women need to somehow with reverence communicate and work at that. And he says, and they're not to be slanders. They're not supposed to get together making a coffee or whatever they're doing in church in a corner and go, these men, don't you, you want to just string them up? You know, they can't do that, Okay. That's slander. It, it's not appropriate. And if you're a younger woman and you're going, well, then what do you do? Go talk to an older lady. That's what the passage says. Because they will know how to instruct you on what you should do. It also adds in there, don't be a slave to much wine. I've watched my wife have three children. Men don't do anything nearly that drastic. And it, in the, Paul's day, a childbirth, there was usually a lot of children born, and it was ve- it's very difficult on a body. And wine was used to help some of the ailments that came as you age having had children. That's one of the places. That may be part of the application here. And he says, be careful of that. Don't bury all of your troubles in the wine, even medicinally speaking, because then how could a young woman see the power of God in you? So medicine's not wrong. But he says, be careful, not too much. And then look what it says about the older ladies in verse 4. It says, they're to teach. That's that word doctrine from verse 1. So older women are supposed to teach. They're supposed to teach what is good or literally beautiful. Um, There needs to be a place for women to instruct in church. And you're going to see in the passage, they teach what's good. And I'm going to have us do the young men next even though it's out of order. Go to verse 6. And you're going to see that young men are supposed to have good works. That's that same good word. I think it's a clue to the fact that older women will teach young men. Young men, you need to be able to take instruction from older women. It is good for us. It helps us then lead well later. And so how is a young man going to know beautiful works? He learns it from the lady who teaches doctrine that is beautiful. Um, so you see that in the passage. Look at verse 6. Let's go to the younger men very quickly. And uh, you can go to the next slide because uh, everyone's asleep now. Maybe it would help. 
I, I do that sometimes. But the next slide uh, comes up and it says, if, if you're going to miss everything in this message, get one thing, and that is teach self-control. So look at the young men, verse 7. It says, likewise, urge the young men to be self-controlled. We already learned that old men are supposed to be self-controlled. And we learned, likewise, the ladies are supposed to be self-controlled, the older ladies. And so, not shocker, we're supposed to teach the men, young men how to bring their passions into control. And young men generally are not self-controlled. They need help with that. It says, show yourself in all respects, young men, to be a model of beautiful work. You ought to come into church and say, how can I work? How can I be helpful? Um, because I'm supposed to have beautiful work at home, in the community, in church. And show in your teaching. That's that word doctrine. So young men are supposed to teach. So young men teach. And, and in your teaching, have integrity. In other words, you better live what you teach, young men. It's got to be, it, it's, your life and your words got to match. And then it says, show in your teaching dignity. That's what older men and older women are supposed to be, dignified. So when you're done teaching young men, make sure that when you walk away from that event, that it has put the eyes of the audience not on you, but on God. Show in your teaching that which points people to God, not to your charisma or to who you are. He says, and show in your teaching, verse 8, sound speech. That's that German short hair word. In other words, speech that's balanced, that all fits together, okay, that cannot be condemned. Um, and if you're a young man, you go, man, I don't know if I know how to speak like that. Then go to an older man or an older woman, and they will help you craft that for your speech. And it doesn't just mean preaching. That's not teaching. It could be standing and eating a snack in a few minutes. And when you start talking, you're teaching, whether you like it or not. And it needs young men to direct to who Jesus is. And there's an advantage to this. There's a that for the young men. Look at the that. He says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say. Uh, my boys ran a yard service because I wanted them to learn how to work and uh, pay for college. And uh, they were mowing a yard for a lady who had a little fish on her car with feet and she didn't really believe in Jesus at all. And they were mowing her yard, and they had just gotten a zero-turn mower finally after years of push mowing. And they were pretty excited about that. And she called me. She goes, your boys broke my fence. They turned with the mower, and it cracked it. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. They have a new mower. They, don't, they, they may not have known. They knew. I'm like, okay, did they tell you they broke it? Yes. Um, did they tell you we would fix it for you? Yes. And I'm thinking, then why are you calling me at work? And so I said, uh, so why are you calling me? She goes, I don't understand why they would be honest. Isn't that great? I said, well, let me tell you why they're honest. I said, my boys aren't perfect. They, they make mistakes. But I said, they're honest because Jesus is their king. And I explained the gospel in a few sentences. And she goes, well, that makes sense. I'll buy the materials. You fix it. And she hung up. Did you hear what she said? A lady who didn't even believe in Jesus. When I explained who Jesus was and his control over my boys, she goes, that makes sense. Isn't that what this passage says? So an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say. Young women, you have something similar. So quick, in verse 4b, the middle of the verse, it says, Older ladies, so train the young women. And that word train is the word self-control. It's just a verb now. And it literally, I picture my daughter. Who, when she was a teenager, and she knows I tell this story, when she was a teenager, she'd get wound up. She'd get kind of emotional. And she's a young lady, and they can do that sometimes, right, young ladies? And my wife is so calm, and she would gently take my daughter by the shoulders, and she'd say, Abigail, 
be quiet, right? That is training. That's self-controlling her for the moment. And the ladies, I hate to sneak up on you young ladies, but verse 5 says that we're to train them to be self-controlled. So the word self-control shows up twice in your passage. And as John Piper says, that's got to mean something. Okay, I'll let you young ladies figure that out. So train the young women, it says, verse 4, to love their husbands and children. I hate to tell you husbands, but your wife does not automatically like you. The word love there is like. It's not even the self-sacrificial word love. It's, it's the word like. And uh, your, your wife sometimes doesn't like you. She has to be trained to like you. And that was shocking to me when I studied this. I thought, I'm John Jenks, and I married this lady, and I don't know, why wouldn't she like me? And children, I hate to tell you this, but your mother has to be trained to like you too. Sometimes she would like to choke you. She hasn't, because it's wrong. And thankfully, probably an older lady taught her how not to. Okay? But, as, and, and if you're a younger woman here with children, and you're like, yeah, I'm not liking them right now, go to an older lady on the way to the coffee, okay? And let an older lady train you on how to re-like your children because that's where it comes from. But if we train them that to be self-controlled, verse 5, to be pure, no manipulation, to guard the home. This doesn't mean a woman can't work outside the home. That's not what the language is. It means to guard the home. A lady's supposed to be trained so she can see the big picture of what would harm a house. For the first 10 years of parenting, I really didn't listen to my wife very well on this. And the parenting didn't go very well at times. And finally, I woke up and realized, wait a minute. My wife has a trained young woman, and I should listen to her when she tries to guard us. When she says, if we keep doing that, it's going to end up like this. And I used to say no, but after 10 years, I listened. And you know what? Things went a lot better. Because God intends for the young woman to be a guard of the house in that way. Teach them to be kind and teach them to walk behind or be submissive to their husbands. Why? That the word of God won't be reviled. My wife, we worked with American Legion Baseball, and as we worked with American Legion Baseball, we would have 15 new families to share Jesus with every year. And we would do that, and we'd often be at games, and, and you know, we serve them. But partway through the game, we'd be sitting together, and every year, multiple times, as my wife and I cheered the boys on, not our kids, but just the town kids, and encouraged them and served them, people would come up to us after the game, usually to my wife, and said, it seems like you and your husband like each other. And we thought, well, it's terrible to be married and not like each other. That's what we're thinking. But it was then, you know, we, you seem like you like each other. And my wife would say, yes, we do, and here's why. And she would give words out of a passage like this. Sometimes she even used the word submit, which is so weird in our culture. And she would describe how our marriage works and why we love each other. And every time they would go, wow, that makes sense. No one ever mocked us for what she said. Why? Because they had seen my wife, the young lady, live out these things that an older woman had trained her. That's God's intention. Let me finish. I'm already late, but I got to give you the most important part of the message so you don't give up. Okay, and I'll do it very briefly, but look at verse 11. We'll skip down to there. And it tells us that in the end of the slide, it says the ground of all this or the way we can actually do this is the gospel. Because some of you say, well, I didn't have a godly older woman in my life. My mom wasn't godly. I didn't have your wife as a mom. Um, you might not have, but you lack nothing to be able to live this passage. 
It says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Salvation, literally, the Greek says, salvation for all people. It doesn't mean everyone's going to get saved, but it's saying that God's grace is so huge, it could fix everything. And in the gospel, that's what will happen in the end. And in verse 12 says, this gospel that has appeared, this just magnificent salvation power, trains us, verse 12 says, to renounce undignifiedness or ungodliness. So in other words, the gospel itself, when you believe the gospel, it trains you, old or young, so that you are dignified, not, so you're not ungodly. And it says, and it trains us to renounce worldly passions, no shocker, the next word self-control, right? To live self-controlled. The gospel brings us within control because the gospel is alive in us through the Holy Spirit. Amen? And, and he works that into our life. And it teaches us, it says, to be upright and to be godly or have dignified lives right now. I mean, before heaven even. He's saying, um, in our drug and alcohol ministry, we had many people come in our home, and we had mentors that would meet with them with us, and all kinds of people. One lady, she had come one time, she was struggling with, she came right from rehab to our first night together. She heard the gospel, we spoke it every week, we'd, we'd eat together, speak the gospel, and she went home with an assignment. She had to memorize one gospel verse that we'd given her, and five things about the gospel to, to learn and think about. She goes home. And I don't believe she was redeemed when she came back. Not yet. She got redeemed later. But she came back having thought about the gospel, and we're sitting at the dinner table, week two. And at the dinner table, we always just had people share share something God did this week, share some thanksgivings. And we would worship God while we ate dinner. And she came back, and she's sitting there. And, and we don't expect someone there their second week to share. And she goes, I have something to say. And I'm like, Okay. And our kids are sitting at the table. And she goes, I was thinking about this gospel thing that we learned last week. I'm like, yeah, yeah. She goes, and I realized I need to quit sleeping around. And our kids' eyes were like, bonk. You know, like, you don't hear that in prayer meeting every week. You know what I mean? And I'm like, and I never try and agree with somebody right out of the gate. I said, why do you say that? Because I knew she knew one verse. And it didn't have anything to do with adultery. It had to do with the gospel. And she goes, well, I just thought about it. If Jesus is my Savior, my King, then he's in charge of my body. And I'm just doing whatever I want. He needs to be in charge. Did you just hear what happened with one gospel verse? The gospel trained her to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And believe me, we gave her a lot of other verses that backed it up that directly talked about adultery. Okay? And so that she would know how she ought to live. But the gospel trained her. I mean, minimal amount of truth. God uses it that way. If God did that for that lady and began to remake her life, he has given you everything you need to do Titus 2. So I ask you this as Sean comes. What are you going to do with it? What will you do? Um, I would ask you to write on your notes or on your phone or however you do that, someone that you should go to who's ahead of you. And you say... Well, Sean and Pastor Jim, they've not created a discipleship plan for our church. Um, Titus 2 just gave it to you. It doesn't have to be a program where they match people up, okay? You just heard this message. The Spirit of God's in you. The gospel is training you. Who should you go to who's ahead of you? And if you're one of these older people that a young person comes to and says, I think I need some help, you say, okay, I will help you, right? Can we say that, old people? Okay, I will help you, right? 
Because this is what God wants. And then you're a younger person. Maybe you're 15 years old. Who's behind you? There are younger people at this church. Younger than 15 that you should be saying, man, when I come to church, I ought to start to point this young man, this young lady to love Jesus. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that just do this simple act of discipleship. Scott and I have not outgrown this. We do this, and we have men in front of us and men behind us, and we are working to just simply help men. And, and then there are ladies we walk near that are helping ladies to just really worship you, Lord, and let you guide our lives. I pray that this church family would simply put this in place wherever it's missing. And where they've been doing it, give them great courage from your gospel this week. In Jesus' name, amen.